Welcome to the podcast for pet carers. If you're a pet parent or work in the pet care industry, then this is the podcast for you. Our show is about all things pet care, discussing everything from cats and kittens, dog training, pet nutrition, boarding, grooming, daycare, and much more. Join us fortnightly as our host and dog trainer extraordinaire, Glenn Cook, chats with leading pet industry professionals. Welcome back to the podcast for pet carers. I'm host of the show, Glenn Cook, and today in studio, I'm joined by the training supervisor for Canine Evolution, Verity Sanders. Welcome, Verity. Thank you for having me. Today, you've got a topic that you want to talk to us about, which is socialization and habituation. Terrific topic, something that I'm really passionate about myself and something that you and the team at Canine Evolution have to deal with on a regular basis, which is why we get so many dogs from the public come in for training. I think it's a great topic. I really think it's one that multiples of people need to listen to. Well, if it was my way, I'd have it that every person getting a dog or owning a young dog or about to embark on the journey of introducing their dog to the world, this is something that they need to listen to. Exactly. And I guess the issue for us being trainers is we don't see those dogs until the 12 to 18 month mark of their life. Mm. So I guess the most important thing for me is to bring awareness to what owners can do when they get their puppies at a younger age to make sure that they become more confident puppies Mm. and to make sure that if you do see any of those behaviours, that you do get the help earlier rather than leave it till later. I totally agree with that. You know, just having a bit of backwards and forwards on this and thinking out loud, I never want to knock business back. Nobody does who's in the training arena. Everybody's happy to get clients present to them. We're all grateful that people come to us and trust us with their dogs to train. However, I think what most of us would like to do is preventative work rather than fixing problems that are already pre-existing in the dogs. And that's a shame that even with all the information that's available to us in this generation, this age, this golden era of information where we can access things so quickly is that we're still finding that people are getting dogs, they're not getting access to the right information. They haven't done a lot of research yet, and yet what happens is generally they get the dog, they take the dog home, there's a lot of things that aren't done so well, and then they seek the professional help. If only they met us in the origins of their dog story, it would be a much better outcome for them. That's what we're here for anyway. Not everything goes exactly to plan. Not everybody's life is just an amazing accomplishment where they can just line everything up and everything falls into place. Life gets in the way. Things get in the way. I totally understand that more than anybody else. It's the same thing has happened to me before. You know, there's been plenty of plans and plenty of ambitions that I've had in my life. And it just hasn't worked out exactly the way I wanted to. So it's not a scorn. It's just something that, again, as I said before, it's thinking out loud on this matter. If only we had the opportunity to work with these dogs as a younger dog. And I think a lot of the time people lump both socialization and habituation in together Mm. and they don't truly understand what each of them means. There is one thing that I wanted to ask you, seeing how you have been in the breeding part of puppies. Yep. I was reading a book by Carol Wolf called Puppy Socialization. And in that, there was a point that she actually said that before six weeks of age, they don't have that fear response yet. Mm. So if you see a jolt in the puppy's body language or anything like that, the biggest thing is, is it's not a fear response as far as I could read into it. 
but it's just their body's way of naturally reacting to some sort of stimuli. So what she said was don't react to it. They're not going to worry about it. So what are your thoughts on that? Have you heard that? It's an interesting observation, something that I've paid a lot of attention to in the past when I've actually watched puppies develop. And I've had time around the whelping box when there have been puppies during that growth phase from birth up to eight weeks of age when the puppies are due to depart. There's a lot of things that happen, and especially around the times where the eyes and the ears open for the first time. And that happens around about 10 days to two weeks of age. During that time, it's interesting to note how they perceive the world because they're seeing things and hearing things for the first time. So there's a flood of stimuli coming into them. People get worried when they've had puppies for the first time that their puppies are suddenly surprised or they cry out, they retreat away from them. I have had people who have whelped puppies before for the first time or even the second time and have seen it and have rang me up or they've said to me in conversation, I've seen this behaviour, what should I make of it? And I said, nothing, it's a normal progression. It's seeing and hearing for the first time. It's quite alarming. I don't know whether I put that in the fear category, but certainly in the surprise category because they will see something or they will hear something. And don't forget, that's the first time their ears have ever worked. The ears now have developed. Surprising to some people, puppies are born without the ability to see or hear between 10 days and 14 days of age. So when that happens, as I said before, it's the very, very first time all that stimuli has been present to them. And it's a great phenomenon to watch. Sometimes the puppies are curious. They'll see movement for the first time. They'll see each other for the first time. They'll see their mother for the first time. So there's a lot going on, a lot of stimuli being present right at that very, very early stage. There's also a lot that's happening in regards to the development of the puppies during that birth to eight weeks of age. There's a hell of a lot going on. When we get into the nuts and bolts of everything, as they start to develop into that six weeks of age, there's still so many phases that they're all going through. They're going through exploratory stages. They're starting to spar with each other. From about three to four weeks of age, I start to see them mouthing each other, experimenting with sparring and rough play. The play starts getting more and more rough as they start to develop and their teeth start to come out and they can grip hold of each other. All of this is normal. It's natural. It's not just reserved to working breeds such as Rottweilers and Shepherds and Belgian Malinois and so forth. It happens from Chihuahuas and Bichon Frees and all the little cuddly sweet dogs that you see. They will spar with each other roughly and it's normal that they do this and they should be allowed to continue to do this. Normal, healthy, rough play is something that helps them to develop an understanding of pain. They need to understand how that works. They also need to understand the normal order of things as a being a pack animal and a dog that works with each other. And it's learning about the world around them. So if you look into denning animals such as wolves and wild dogs and so forth, a lot of the time the restrictions that we make in the whelping box are not there for those dogs. So sometimes they will pop their head out of the top of the den When the mother is off hunting, they will pop out and have a look around. They'll sniff around. They'll start to get more bold and more exploratory of their natural environment. So when we're doing it as the surrogates, as the people who are controlling the ins and outs of the whelping box, we will start to, we should hopefully start taking them on little safe journeys in and around the house, 
in our environment, if it's clean and it's free of dangerous pathogens that dogs can get, such as parvovirus and distemper, which is hardly ever seen, but all of the things that we vaccinate against. But what we do want to do is we certainly want to allow those puppies to explore, to understand their environment, understand more about what's outside the whelping box, understand life beyond that. However, to get back to your question, your original question is, do I see fear in them? That's hard to know, not being a neurologist, but certainly somebody who's had a lot of experience watching a lot of puppies over a longer period of time. I would say that there have been times probably earlier than six weeks where I definitely feel that I've seen puppies responding to things with fear. One of my colleagues, a guy called Mike Suttle, who is a working dog breeder in the United States, he made a very, very good point some time ago where he wouldn't let people go into the whelping rooms with an active mother when he had young puppies because the mother would activate at the front of the cage and trample all over the puppies and this was their first negative experience to people coming around. So instead of being bold and courageous and standing at the front of the whelping box or even the pen that they're in, they would get trampled on so they would all run to the back because they were getting hurt and squashed and the experience was very negative for them. So that can impact a whole litter of puppies. That can be the very, very first thing that ever happens. To get into the weeds of this a little bit, we've got genetics, which is a mosaic of a lot of different things that happens over generations of our great, great, great grandparents, all the way up to our parents. And we don't know what that dice roll is going to be as far as we're going to inherit what from who. The entity has to appear and then the developmental stage will happen from there. The other thing which we have to take into account, the other process which has been an interesting journey for me as part of my education is what we call epigenetics. And that is the impact of the environment, nutrition, exposure the parents have had, both the mother and the father, and what that will do to alter and change the genetics of the dog. And that can happen too with our puppies as well. So epigenetics is something that happens to us on an ongoing basis. There will be switching mechanisms on our double helix, our gene strands, that will actually change and mutate over time based on our experiences, as I said before, the foods that we eat and the amount of stress that we actually endured during that time leapfrogging back to the point, the original point, have I seen fear before that time? I think I have. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't read the book that you've spoken about. I'd be interested to read it now because it sounds like an interesting read. Maybe it's backed by science or maybe it's backed by a thought or a belief. I'm curious to see what it actually says. Going forward on that topic, when I think about the work that Scott and Fuller did, and I think it was called The Genetics and the Social Behaviour of Dogs, by John Paul Scott and John Fuller, Dr. John Paul Scott, I should say, they extensively researched this and they began their research from six weeks of age. And that's where you and I are going to sort of start our conversation from, from that six to 16 weeks of age, which is called what? The critical period of development. Absolutely. The critical period of development. Why is it called the critical period? Because that's when the dogs do majority of their learning. Yep. And get socialised and habituated with their life around them. Mm. When we do talk about socialisation and habituation, like I said when we started, it more often than not gets lumped in together. Mm. To start with, let's talk about what socialisation as one part is and then we'll get into what habituation is. Nice. So let's talk about what socialisation is separately. 
socialization for me is how the puppies or how the dogs interact with social entities, mm-hmm. whether or not that be dog on dog yep. or dog to human or dog to other type of species. Mm-hmm. Whereas habituation is how the dog interacts with its environment yep. and the stimuli in that environment. Mm. A lot of the questions that I get working primarily with people that have those older dogs is what socialization looks like to them. Mm. And a lot of the time what they say to me is socialization is, oh, I want my dog to be friendly with every single dog. I want my dog to get on with every single dog. Whilst that's great to have, unfortunately at the end of the day, that's not always realistic. Mm. Dogs being dogs, they are pack animals. We know this. A lot of the time they won't get along with every single dog that they meet. And it's important that we don't push them into those social interactions because you can start to actually create behavioural issues around that. Do you like everyone you meet? I give them the benefit of the doubt when I first meet them. Mm -hmm. I don't go into relationships thinking, oh, I'm not going to like this person. I do like to think that I do give them the benefit of the doubt and then I make my mind up. Let's say you meet 20 people at a party. Are you sure you're going to like every one of those 20 people even after the conclusion of the party happens or do you walk away thinking... Ten of those people were awesome. I can't wait to see them again. Two of those people were complete jerks. I hope I never see them again. And the other people, not sure, haven't spent enough time with them. Yes, of course. Like I said, you're not going to like everyone that you meet Mm. and that's a natural thing to happen. Yeah, I think that's a normal phenomenon for most of us is that you can make judgments, which we call first impressions. There are times where you can look at somebody and based on their looks, You can be attracted to them or you can have an aversion to them. And there has been multiple times where people involved in neurology have done fMRI studies where they've shown images of faces to people, different ethnicities, different gestures on the faces and so forth, and there will be either a positive attraction to the person or an aversive reaction to the person. And dogs are very much that same sort of thing as well. Like there's often the case where people talk about the big man with the beard and the hat, which... I fit into that category because I'm big, I've got a beard and I wear a hat. So there are dogs that do make that first impression call when they see me. And people are fundamentally like that themselves as well. So they do meet people, they do see people and they do think to themselves, I don't know whether I'm going to like this person yet based on the way they look. So they go about the meeting and the introduction the same way. And yes, you're right. This is a social experience. It's a normal phenomenon that most of us have. We can have experiences with other people where they look similar and it may be an attractive or a romantic outcome and therefore it's already a positive association with the new person you're going to meet or you might have had a very tumultuous time with that person where there could have been an assault that took place or something that happened, something where you've had a very negative history with that person and the person who shares that identity you can start to make an association with that person in a negative format as well. So dogs and most other species have that same uh, conclusion when they're having a social experience themselves. There are some dogs that don't like border collies, for argument's sake. They've had a negative experience with a border collie or they may have been attacked at a dog park by a border collie in a social experience or a social gathering and that for them has scarred them for the rest of life. For any dog that looks like that, their immediate response to a dog that looks like that is this dog will probably attack me, so I need to get in first or I need to run away, that classic fight or flight outcome. So it's fascinating how we interpret the social experience with others. Let's touch on dog parks there for a second. In that socialisation aspect, 
a lot of my clients come to me yep. and they'll exactly tell me that, oh, I took my dog to the dog park. They didn't really get along with the dogs, but I allowed them to run and play and I kept them there. Mm-hmm. A lot of people allow their dogs to play differently than you might. Yep. So me as a trainer, I will allow a certain degree of behavior and then I'll stop it. Mm-hmm. My own personal dogs at home, when they play, there's a lot of mouthing, there's a lot of growling, there's a lot of sounds that come from them, mm. which I'm absolutely fine with because I know that that's how they like to play. I have two cattle dog crosses. Mm. The noises that come from them in my backyard, I've had my neighbor sometimes message me and be like, hey, is everything okay over there? Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my neighbors have two hours, so yep. it's very different yeah, it to is. the sounds that yep. come from my house. I can understand that. So yeah, they'll message me and then they'll be like, oh, okay, cool. Yep. Or I'll get home and they'll be like, hey, just letting you know that they were having a great time out in the backyard. Mm. Just to allow me to be aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. I actually posted a video of the weekend. They were up at 6 a.m. with me playing in the living room. Yep. To a lot of people, the sounds and the look of when they're playing can be scary. Yes, it can. And I understand that completely. However, when I bring my dogs to daycare, I'm a lot stricter on them mm. because not every dog likes to play that way. Yes, exactly right. And that's the thing about dog parks, getting mm. back to the main point of this, is different owners allow different things. Your generic owner really, at the end of the day, won't understand what is appropriate play and what is not appropriate play. Exactly right. And it's not their own fault. They just don't know what to look for in that play style or in that behaviour that those dogs are showing. A lot of play and a lot of exposure that people do in those social outcomes, especially when they go to dog parks, is due to a lack of literally no education. So their exposure to socialising their dogs is literally that. It's just one dog going into a new environment, not knowing what to expect and not knowing what play looks like. To use an example of the story that you told about your dogs and the vocalisations that they make, I remember years ago, and this is going back 30 years, a friend of mine bought a Rottweiler called Bruno off another trainer that was at the club. And this dog, Brutus, sorry, his name was Brutus. So he bought a Rottweiler called Brutus off another trainer at the club. And this dog had some of the most outrageous vocalizations that I've ever heard. He was a Rottweiler, big male. This dog, when he was making these vocalizations, you would think that this dog was going to kill you. They were very aggressive sounding, but this was just the dog's characteristics, the dog's vocalizations, the way the dog would communicate. He never did anything. I mean, he was a capable dog. He was involved in some law enforcement training. He was a very capable dog in that aspect, but the vocalizations weren't an indication of his aggression level. They were just the way he would vocalize. So if you would pat him, if you'd play with him, if he was chasing you around in the backyard for play, chasing a ball, it was a very guttural, deep growling noise that this dog would make. A lot of Rottweilers do that. Rottweilers can be very grumbly, growly sort of dogs. Yes, there are times where it does lead to aggression. Some dogs, it is very indicative that aggression is about to follow. It's a good precursor that that's what to expect. That's what's following from the dog. However, with this dog, Brutus, never backed it up with aggression. It was not about aggression. It was just about the dog itself. And a lot of people were quite intimidated by it. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. He was a big intimidating looking Rottweiler. And when he would make that sound, people would become afraid and they'd back away from the dog. There was nothing he could do to change it. Like he he would not stop doing it. And his owner didn't try and make him because he realized it would be cruel and it would be unfair to the dog to try and stop it. What I will do is I will limit the exposure 
with other people or explain to them this is how he is. This is the behaviour and the manifestations of the dog. And to extend further about what you were talking about before with the introduction of other dogs and play systems in social environments, people don't know because they're not trainers and they're not experienced that should I introduce my dog who does behave like this, who likes to play like this with other dogs who may not like to play with this, what I would suggest in those type of environments, if you are taking your dogs to social meetings, especially dog parks, is play it cool. Do the introduction slowly and always on lead. Start with on lead. Therein lies another issue where there could be onset aggression from the dog being on lead. Sometimes the lead itself can promote aggression and that is another issue in itself. When these issues start to rear their head, this is where I like to say to people, okay, stop, reassess, is it time for a specialist to come in now? Trainers aren't... Not all trainers are equipped to deal with this. Some trainers are very good at teaching dogs to sit, stand, drop, and recall. They're terrific at that type of job. Not all trainers are endowed with enough knowledge and experience to work with dogs who are starting to emit aggressive postures and displays and even the skirmishes that they get into. So when that does happen, and hopefully when people are listening to this, if they're embarking on their journey with a new dog, Please don't just flick through social media and and marketing and have a look for somebody who's got a nice page. Look at their actual experience. Like ask them questions about that itself. There are multiple times. We did an episode with Andrew Clark a while ago who is, you know, one of the country's leading authorities on dealing with aggression. That's pretty much what he does for a job all the time is go around. He teaches council workers. He teaches general public. He teaches other trainers on how to manage and cope and look for the strategies around dog aggression in itself. There are so many people who are lacking that critical experience, lacking any real knowledge or education around it, yet are still offering advice to new people or even experienced people, which is bad advice. Bad advice is bad advice is bad advice. If people are getting bad advice, that's the beginning of their education. That's what they know. That's what they will trust. And that's what they will start doing because they believe being a good hearted, well-intended person who has actually taken the steps to do something about it, that they've got themselves a professional, somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Do some research, ask some questions, look around the industry, make sure that the person that you have got is somebody who's had multiple years of experience, does know what they're doing. It's not just about the years. It's about the capability and the competency of the person doing it themselves. Some people's full-time jobs are working with dogs. Some people's part-time job is working with dogs. Some people are sitting in an office working on a computer five days a week and then one or two days on the weekend, they're doing a part-time dog training business. I know who I would trust. I would trust somebody that I can see has a resume that is backed up by experience. That's what I would look for in anything I do. If I'm looking for somebody to teach me a skill in any department, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, whether it's training dogs, playing guitar, learning how to ride a motorbike, all the hobbies that I'm interested in, I seek out the best person for it, not the cheapest person. Money should never be a indication of competency and capability. I know very incompetent people who charge a lot of money, I know very experienced people who don't charge a lot and everywhere in between. What I ask people to do is do your research, do your due diligence, really look into who is it that's coming to do this because 
you know, we've talked about the periods of socialization before, as you indicated before, Verity, the critical period of development, six to 16 weeks of age. This is also critical. This is another critical step forward when we're talking about developing a beautiful social experience for the dogs and setting the stage for the rest of the dog's life, hopefully, or improving it from a period onwards where there has been some turbulence and we want to correct what's happening going forward. With us working for Canine Evolution, obviously we work within Pet Resorts of Australia, yep. which means that we come across thousands of dogs every year. Every year. I have been doing this professionally for a year and a half. I know that doesn't sound like a long time to a lot of people. However, the amount of hands-on experience that I've had with dogs because of the way that we work throughout this company, I feel like does give me that little bit more experience than say your regular trainer that would just work with private clients outside of a resort. I see a lot of dogs that their first experience of being away from home is coming into these kennels. Imagine being six months old and being taken to this new environment Mm. that you have never experienced these sounds, being around this much smell, being around this many dogs before and expected to be able to cope with that. For me, when I see those dogs come in, they're the ones that I have this little bit of more of a bond with. Don't get me wrong, I love all dogs, but those little ones that need that confidence building is where I gravitate towards. Yep. It's the change in those dogs that I see throughout that boarding experience from that day one of them coming in as those little trembling balls of fur in the corner to those confident dogs that are coming up to you when you go into their room, they want to come out with you, that makes me feel fulfilled in Mm. my job role. And I guess that brings me back to the importance of that socialisation aspect. A lot of the behaviours that we see is, for lack of a better term, caused because of over-socialisation. And a lot of clients don't realise that it's okay to say no to people when they're like, hey, can I interact with your dog? Very good point. It is okay for you to stand up and say, no, sorry, we're training today. They don't need to know that you're not really training. They just need to know that, hey, I've said no and you need to respect those boundaries. There's some very good points there, Verity. To address the earlier point that you said before about the time involved in being a dog trainer, during my life... For the last 30 years, and especially more so the last 15 years, I've been involved in teaching people to become dog trainers. So I'm TAE accredited, which means I have an actual certification in teaching people how to do that. There are lots of people who are involved in the education space. They do it privately, they do it commercially, they do it as a profession. As I indicated, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of men and women over many, many years and watching them develop into this industry itself. It reminds me, getting to the point, it reminds me of a movie called 300 where it's about the Persians trying to invade Sparta in the very early era. There's a scene where Leonidas, who is the leader of the Spartans, is joined by a incursion of Greeks and they're offering to help. And he looks around and he says to a few of them, what's your profession? And he said, oh, I'm a potter. And he said, what about your profession? He said, I'm a farmer. And he asks a random few others what they actually do for their job. Then when he turns to his own soldiers, he said, Spartans, what is your profession? And they all chant, they all keep chanting. And he turns back to the leader of the Greek army and he says, see, my friend, I did bring more soldiers than you. The point I'm trying to make is 
a lot of that army that was being offered to help were not soldiers. They were people who were just willing hands that could hold a shield and a sword. And it's a lot of the time that happens in our industry as well. I was having this conversation with my own wife, Narelle, who started a company called Canine Suticals. And there are times where she gets concerned about there are other people in professions who come into her space and people might see them in a more professional light because of who they are in the industry. Like, for example, they could be a vet or something like that. But as I've said to her, her role, her job, her qualification over the last five years has been purely in the canine nutrition space. That's all she does for a job. The other people representing that space, they are part-time in it. What they're doing, it doesn't mean that they're not involved in it or not involved in animal health, but they are not seeing dogs all the time or not studying the nutrition space all the time. And that is the same thing for trainers like you. Your job, your full-time job is training dogs all day, every day, Monday to Friday, you know, and even sometimes on the weekends as well. That's what we do. And I'm not trying to make this sound insulting. However, I've been surrounded by dogs. I live at a kennel and I see dogs anywhere between 70 and 250 dogs at a given time. And there's other people who they're lucky to deal with two or three dogs a day on a very sporadic time. It doesn't mean that they aren't competent. It doesn't mean they aren't capable or have a capability. It doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing. It does mean, however, that a lot of them are lacking the experience to understand what are the variations of behavior that I'm going to see, what am I going to witness, how can I draw a comparison when somebody comes to me and says, I've got this breed, it's doing this, I've seen this manifest, what can I do about it? And if you haven't had the experience with some of these breeds or their associative behaviors, it doesn't mean that Some breeds are so wildly different than other dogs, but they do have their quirks. They do have a variation of a behavior that's not common to some of the other dogs. When you're seeing it on a regular basis, when you're being presented with this great variation, it gives you a better depth of knowledge to draw from. That's probably the entirety of the point that I'm trying to make is that if we are involved in these professions on an ongoing long-term basis and we are in the game, we are showing great attention to detail, like Leonidas and the Spartans, their role was dedicated to doing what they needed to do. Their role was directed to soldiering. Our role is directed to working with a lot of dogs for a lot of these presented issues. For people who are working in this field, who are dedicated, who are educating themselves. And that's another point that I wanted to add to this as well. One of my criticisms is a lot of people who may be working in this field for a long time aren't doing ongoing education. They aren't learning new skills. They aren't looking to what is furthering their education. And I know we do that. You and I do that. We Mm -hmm. attend seminars. We're constantly doing internal training a lot now. You know, we've got Andrew that's going around to all the resorts He's educating our own staff, not just our trainers, but our kennel workers as well, even our administration staff on, if you see this behavior, this is what you need to do with it or the considerations that you need to have around it. That's a really good point as well. Since having Andrew here and obviously working closer with yourself, I've changed completely from when I first started. Like There is a big difference in my knowledge and Mm. how I handle dogs and the results that I'm getting for my clients. 
And that's because we are constantly talking. Mm. We are always engaging with each other to figure out, okay, this happened. How can we change this? Or how can we make it better? How can we improve our skills? And that's really important for me as well. And that's why when we have our training nights with the other trainers, it's really important that it's a group discussion, not just one person talking to everyone else. And that's a really big thing as well is making sure it is a group discussion that continues to happen, Mm. not just around socialization and habituation, but also developing your skills in your set field. Totally agree. Let's talk about a couple of ways that people can build confidence with their dogs Mm -hmm. in that critical period of development and how to do it safely. So I know we've touched on dog parks. For me personally, I avoid dog parks. Me too. Just for the record. I generally encourage a lot of people to do so. I just need to touch on that just quickly because I feel that people will ask the question, well, why then if we've got allocated space for dogs, would professionals and people tell us to avoid them? The issue with dog parks is not that I want people to avoid dog parks. I just want them to avoid the uneducated huddle that ends up turning up to dog parks. It's not that I won't go to a dog park entirely. I will. Once I see a formation of people entering the dog park that I feel uncomfortable with, I settle up my dog and off Mm -hmm. I trot. I don't want to be there anymore because I just have this future prediction of all of the possibilities of something that's going to go wrong. Now, I've met clients at dog parks before, you know, like I've actually met them on the outskirts of a dog park. We've assessed the situation there to see whether it's a suitable environment to enter because they might be in a city and it might be the best location for them to go. And there might be an environment where I can isolate ourselves away from the main fracas of dogs that are there And if we feel that the heat is becoming a little bit too warm at that point in time, we can choose to then leave. But for the majority of times, I will recommend don't go to dog parks, get involved in a social environment where you spend more time huddled together chatting. And then suddenly you turn around to find that your dog is on the floor being pinned down by one of the other group's dogs. And then there will be a social uproar between that group because then the blame games will all start you will often find that even though your dog is the recipient of the injuries, you'll be blamed by the other group because they will say you're the one that brought the problem to the group. In those sort of situations, I just think it's better off that you just comfortably walk away. What I do encourage people to do, not just in dog training, not just in this topic that we're discussing, but just in life itself, is that if you feel the hair on the back of your neck going up or you feel that predictive situation in your stomach where it's called trust your gut, trust your gut, walk away. Just Say goodbye to everyone politely, make an excuse, tactfully leave. And it's something that I often do. If I don't feel that a situation is right, I will tactfully decline. I'll just say, nah, I don't fold to peer group pressure. I did when I was a child and I was ignorant in those sort of situations. But now that I'm an adult, when my stomach tells me that there is, I'm in a situation where I shouldn't be involved in, I just tactfully decline. I excuse myself and I walk out and I encourage others to do the same. I guess to also add on to that is before you even get into the dog park, assess the situation. Entirely. Assess what dogs are already in that dog park. Yes. I'm kind of going to contradict what I said before. Okay. Again, I don't completely avoid dog parks. Okay. I use them to better my ability. Yeah. And to better my dog's training. It's not the park. It's the situation involved in the park that we avoid. Exactly. There's been multiple times I have a tiny little dog park down Mm. the road from me. Yeah. Hardly anyone knows about it. 
I will take my dogs there. We've had a couple of dogs come in before and I'm like, no, let's leave. This isn't going to work. The mixture of the size of dogs as well that people put into those scenarios makes me very uncomfortable. Yes. So again, following my gut, I'm like, this is not for me. I'm leaving. Yep. I want to make sure that our clients are also doing that. So when you do start to think about socializing your dog, an important point is if you know of a stable dog that you can socialize your dog with, pick that rather than take them to that environment where there is just this culmination of random dogs with different play styles. However, one thing that I do want to touch on is owners think that their dogs need to be social with every single dog. For me, I want my dog to be neutral around dogs. I want them to be able to switch onto that play, but also be able to switch off and relax and just be neutral Mm. around dogs. For me, that's what my idea of social looks like for my dogs. Again, having two high drive dogs, it is really important for me to make sure that they can switch off, to make sure that I've built that in with them. And that's a big thing that I also promote with my clients. So being able to switch that dog off and then switch that dog on when you want that. So when you are talking about socialization between two dogs, rather than, like I said, take them to a dog park, put them in with 20 dogs, find that one dog that you know, socialize it with that and then grow the group. Mm. But again, as we said, not every dog is going to get along with every single dog. Yep. And that's okay. If your dog doesn't get along with another dog, don't take it to heart. Well, it didn't work out. It could be that they're two completely different ages. could be that they're two completely different play styles and they're just not going to get along. Yep. Totally agree. We see this a lot with bully breeds. Mm -hmm. Personally, my little female is a cattle dog cross staffy. Yep. She has the staffy play style. Mm Mm-hmm. Not every dog enjoys that. Right, because Staffies play hard. Exactly. There is a set couple of dogs that she really likes to play with. So I will allow her to play in her way with them. However, as I said, when I take her into a bigger group, she is under control. Mm -hmm. If I tell her not to do something, she knows, okay, I can't do that. If I recall her, she comes straight back to me. So that's another important thing as well that I want to touch on with socialization is how important it is to have good control over your dog. Indeed. Like we said, we start the socialization on leash only when you can trust your dog, then let them off leash. Now that's hard to do at a dog park because no one wants a long line. It shouldn't be done at a dog park. It should be done outside the dog park. Exactly. Yep. And that was going to be my next point. If you do really want to focus on socialization with your dog, get them into a daycare that has trainers present yes, or more qualified staff that have the experience on how to bring that dog in safely. Yep. I totally agree. So now that we've spoken a little bit like that, let's talk a little bit about socialization with humans. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest behaviors that I see that comes from puppies being socialized with humans is they get the head shyness around them. Because every time you see somebody walk up to a puppy, what's the first thing that they do? Reach out and touch them on the head. Exactly. What do kids do? Reach out and touch them on the head. Exactly. So this goes back to my point that it's okay to say no to people. Mm. So if you're walking your puppy down the street and someone's like, oh, can I say hi to it? You can be like, yes, you can. However, we're going to do it a certain way. And that's a really big point that I bring up with my clients as well is advocating for your dog. And it starts in that critical period of development. 
and it goes throughout their entire life because once they go past that critical period of development, they can still obviously develop these fear responses from this stimuli. So it's really important that when you're out about training your dog that you do pick and choose the people that you allow to interact with your dog. Mm. For myself, I like to have set days of the week that my dog doesn't get to meet people and then set days that she does get to meet people. My boy cattle dog, he doesn't really care about people, so I'm never going to put him in that situation. Mm. If anyone tries to interact with him, I just straight up say, no, sorry, he doesn't like interacting with people. That's me protecting him. Whereas my little girl, you can tell by her entire body language that she wants to meet this person, but I don't want her to see too much value in meeting every single person that she comes along. Yep. I don't want her to see overvalue in meeting those people because then it's going to be hard for me to retain that neutrality that I want from her yep. in those social situations. I want to be able to take my dog around the corner to the cafe and have her sit next to me calmly. But it's important that we all control those interactions. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. And I think that's one of the failings of the general public a lot of the times is they don't understand that they're allowing the general public to control their dog's behaviour when they're out in public. I think that's been something that I've been strongly advocating for when I'm teaching new people, especially trainers, when they're educating their clients. What they need to pass on to them specifically is if your dog does find the value that you indicated as before, that other people are more valuable to them in those environments, what their belief is when I'm in public, I... A, I don't need to listen to you, and B, there is more fun in other people than there is in you. What the dog needs to understand is, yes, I can go and meet people. I'm friendly, I'm sociable, and we don't want to discourage that. So if people are listening to this and saying, oh, but you're trying to make the dog sound like it doesn't have any fun or any enjoyment when it does go out. Don't forget these are rewards for the dog. This is a reinforcing time for the dog. So if the dog learns that getting out means that I can just go crazy, I can meet people, I can disregard anything that you're trying to do or the control that I have. Not only will it be a learning opportunity for the dog of everything that you don't want, it will also mean that then you have to go into extreme training practices and a lot of things that you really probably won't want to do because you've allowed it to manifest and it's grown in all the wrong areas. There's an old biblical saying that says, as ye sow, so shall ye reap which basically means the seeds that you put in the ground today will be what you will probably get out tomorrow as far as the bounty. So the seeds that you sow are a dog that understands that any outing means that they can have this uncontrollable, crazy introduction to the general public and completely disregard you. That's what you'll reap from it. That's the behavior that you'll continue to see. It will strengthen, it will get worse, or... It will stay the same, which is bad enough in itself. And that's really not what you want to do. That's not what I consider a good or a bountiful social introduction. That's what I consider an onset problematic behavior that is going to manifest in other areas. And you're really going to be disappointed in what it bleeds into in other scenarios because it will follow you home as well. It won't just be outside it will start to manifest inside the home as well. You will see it in other things that you'll think, where did this behavior come from? Why is the dog behaving this? Now when I have guests, why do I have this offensive behavior? Where is this coming from? And it comes from things like that because you haven't set the boundaries, you haven't set the stage for how to behave. 
Again, I don't want people to think they can't introduce their dog. I don't want people to think that their friendly dog who does love meeting people can't do that anymore. It needs to be done with thought and consideration. And that's one of the biggest points that we always say is you want to find somebody that has experience in doing that with those dogs. Yes. And that's where experience comes before people that have the flashy social media, everything like that. Yep. So when it comes to this, as we've discussed already in this podcast, it is important that you reach out to the trainer that has experience rather than just has a flashy social media following or a page. You want to know that when you are reaching out to this person that they have the capabilities to be able to help you develop your puppy into a strong, confident adolescent dog. Yep. So let's move on from socialization into habituation. Mm -hmm. So we already covered what habituation means. Yes. Now I'm going to go into one of the main behavioral issues that we see that a lot of people don't understand why this happens. Mm -hmm. The main one that we have when clients come in is my dog is scared of the vacuum cleaner. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a reoccurring issue. A lot of people will have this issue when they have that puppy. Mm -hmm. So it's important that the first interaction that that dog has with that stimuli is positive. Yep. So what that means is starting early from day one with the vacuum cleaner off. Yep. A lot of the time the first instant that that dog has that interaction with the vacuum cleaner is the first time you pull it out to clean your house. Mm. Therefore, there's this loud noise with this rotating head that this dog's never seen before. Mm -hmm. And what will happen a lot of the time, not every time, but a lot of the time is people will see this response. And a lot of the time this response comes out in the form of biting the vacuum cleaner. Yep. Over arousal. Yep. Mm. Which then people find funny. Yes. Especially children. Exactly. Which then continues that vicious cycle of making this behavior worse. The other point there in regards to children as well, and it's not just children, it's not limited to only children, adults will do it too. But as you indicated before, during this habituation cycle where the dogs do become afraid of the vacuum cleaner, there are a couple of manifestations of why this happens. Sometimes it's the sound itself that can be quite aversive, which means it's a negative sound to the dog. There are other times where the kids chase the dog with a vacuum cleaner because they find that hysterical that the dog has panicked and run off and hidden under a couch and or a bed or whatever, and they'll still pursue them and push the vacuum cleaner head in after them. There have been multiple hundreds of instances over my career where I know that's what's happened because I can see how the dog responds and I can also see the consequential behavior of the children as well. Sometimes what I do politely say to people is get your house in order. The kids need to understand what boundaries are as well because it's one thing to talk about the expectations and the desires of what they want from their dog whilst they're not controlling their children. Their children are allowed to run amok, which ultimately means this problem is not going to go away. It's probably going to get worse. So that's why I generally say to people, get your house in order. That's a great point. A lot of the time that's one of the main points that I bring up with my clients as well is what do you want your life to look like with your dog? Yeah, good question. And how does your family dynamic Mm. involve that dog? Yep. With my own dogs, from personal experience, when I have my nieces and nephews over, there is a lot more structure put into my household than there is when they're not there. Mm. Because I need to make sure that no one is being put into a situation that is one, going to cause any behavioral issues from my dogs or put anyone at risk. So when you do first bring your dog home, it is really important that you start to expose them to different stimuli. Mm. Not only different sights, sounds, smells, 
everything like that, but also different textures. Yep. Bubble wrap mm. for dogs and the grates on the ground for dogs. Like the storm drains yep. and so forth. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, the storm drains are two of the major textures that I've noticed that when we have dogs come in that they're very put off by. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see a dog walking down the street and they will make a detour around that storm drain. So it's really important that we expose the puppies and the dogs to these types of things. Whether or not that means getting one of the clamshell pools from Bunnings and putting bottles in it and feeding them in that to just luring them over bubble wrap, starting to lure them over the different textures of metal, everything like that. It's really important that we start to build that with dogs as well as introducing them to the vacuum cleaner, to the mop bucket. The reaction that I've seen from some dogs to mops blows my mind. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. My first dog, extremely reactive to the feather duster. Wow. To the point that it got to the point where I had to remove him from the room because no matter how much desensitization I did to him or with him, sorry, he just could not get past this feather duster. Wanted to get it or was this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. it looks like yeah. a, a big flirt pole. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and there was one time, the first time he did it, ripped it straight out of my hand. Yep. And I was just left there like, what happened? <laughs> and he's taken off out the back with the feather duster. Yep. So then I had to put in management to stop that from happening again mm. because I didn't want him to get reinforced from it. Yep. Which he did at the start. Exactly. And because it was such a big reinforcement for him that first time, I do believe that that's why with no matter how much work I put in, it was just way too reinforcing for him. Mm. The other thing that attributes to that is predatory drive as well, um, whereas that's a response that is generated within the brain. Like there are certain things that dogs will see and they always will have a predatory feeling towards something and that's very hard to suppress in some dogs, especially when it's very ingrained in their DNA as well. One quick point that I did want to bring up going back to this is the socialization aspect and behavior modification are normally two different things. Mm. Socialization is getting them used to things where behavior modification normally comes after they've gone through that developmental period. Yep. And that's where it becomes into with the habituation as well. Because a lot of the time, once we get to that stage where they are showing those responses, we're in that behavior modification rather than socialization period. Yeah, it can still exist within socialization because with socialization of interacting with other species, behavior can manifest from that. So we can go into behavioral modification from that, how to behave in certain aspects where the social interaction isn't as desirable as what we wanted to. Therefore, we have to understand that that is now more about modifying the behavior because the dog is learning that if I meet this person or if I meet this dog or I meet this cat, my original belief was I'm allowed to behave this way. Whereas what we're doing is saying, no, that's not socially acceptable in my home, in my environment, in my city. We want to make sure that the dog understands what is it that I'm actually allowed to do. And this is a problem for most dog owners and dogs themselves is the dog owner will have a belief of what the dog should do. They just think it comes pre-programmed out of the box. This is what the dog should do. That's infactual, completely infactual. All of the input that the dog has is based on the environment that it's raised in, i.e. your home, your environment, your city. 
those are the examples of what the dog will actually start to learn. So all of the input that you and your family give that dog is what it's going to learn. Now, there are some things that are hardwired into dogs that are almost going to feel like they're impossible to get rid of, and sometimes they are. We can't look at everything like we can just behaviorally treat it and it's going to go away. Some of these things will not. Sometimes there are extenuating circumstances such as mental health issues. You can throw every behavioral trick in the book at the dog and still find that those behaviors are still just as acute as what they were, or sometimes they appear to be getting worse. Sometimes on the occasion, it means that there needs to be extra consideration, such as behavioral medicines, exactly the same as what we would actually do with humans as well. To wrap this up a little bit, I just wanted to go over something that you said before, Verity, when we started this conversation. We started talking about socialization and habituation. And I believe what we really need to do is develop the definitions of what they are to conclude. So really the way that I've always looked at it is a social interaction is the way that a dog interacts with entities, humans, other dogs, other animals. It doesn't matter what it is but it's always the biological introduction of a species to a species. Whereas we've used the term and we've thrown around the term habituation in this conversation and habituation is habit forming behavior. So the way that a dog behaves and acts around certain stimuli, you use the vacuum cleaner as an example before. So the vacuum cleaner isn't biological, it's a machine. So you can't be social with unless it's a vacuum cleaner with AI, but, you know, let's just talk about the vacuum cleaner. So you can't have a social experience with a vacuum cleaner. You can't have a social experience with a lawnmower. There may be a human involved in operating that, which is the social aspect of it, but the machine itself, if it's sitting there running, there could be generators that are running outside that dogs have an aversive or a negative reaction to. That is not a social experience. That is a habit. Learning to habitually understand that this isn't going to hurt me. There's no reason to run away from it. There's no reason to fear it. There's no reason not to have a normal lifestyle while this thing is running in the background. So what we're trying to do is form pockets of better behavior around some of the things that may or may not scare our dogs. When we talk about the perfect dog in the perfect environment, what we're trying to induce is what we call generalization, which is the merging of the social experiences with entities and the habits that they have around certain stimuli that may or may not upset them or cause them to have adverse behaviors. And then combine the two of those together to what we have a well-rounded dog, as we call the generalized dog, a dog that is adaptive in all environments that we take the dog into. It doesn't matter where we take the dog or what the dog is doing. The dog just basically thinks to itself, well, this is the expectations of my behavior. This is what I am allowed to do. The same way that we learn confines and laws in our environments as well, we understand this is what I'm allowed to do when I go to these environments. Very much as in the aspect of if you got in your car and you wanted to drive from Victoria in Australia all the way up to Western Australia, right up to the very top of the Kimberleys or something like that, you could do that with no problem as long as you behaved within the confines of what the states and laws allowed for you to do. If you breach them, then you will find that aversive consequences will take place. And that's fundamentally what we want to do when we're developing our dogs is we want to teach them what the laws and what the boundaries of the household, 
what extends beyond the household into the environment or when we're taking our dogs into dog parks or populations or other, just let's say other environments outside the home, the dog needs to understand through its education portals of its lifestyle how we can do that and still enjoy life and find life very rewarding. Ultimately, what we want to do is have an unencumbered life that's full of pleasant experiences and lots of rewards. Now, life doesn't work that way for all of us. We have up and down days ourselves. We have experiences where we thought that didn't entirely go to plan. That's life. And that's exactly what life throws at us. It throws us curveballs. The best preparedness that you could offer your dog in any given situation is if these curveballs do come, your dog understands how to minimize the impact it has on it. Therefore, it has on you. Exactly. And I think that's a great way to wrap today up. Thank you. I could talk (laughs) about this, as we know, a lot. Yep. It is one of my main points that I'm very passionate about. If people want to know more about this, they can get in contact with us at canineevolution.com.au. We do have a 1-800 number that you can contact, or you can also email us at training at canineevolution.com.au. And we can chat about it in person with you and go over it extensively and we can help you have the most fulfilled life that you can with your dog. Perfectly said, Verity. What I will point out with Canine Evolution spelling is it's C-A-N-I-N-E, evolution, all one word, dot com dot A-U. They're the major sponsors of our podcast. The 1-800 number that you were referring to before is 1-800-CANINE. Again, that's C-A-N-I-N-E. So if you type that out on your phone pad, you'll get the number for Canine Evolution 1-800-K9, which is 1-800-226-463. You can get hold of Verity if you want to speak to her directly on manager at canineevolution.com.au. While we're talking about our sponsors, to conclude the show, I'd like to also introduce Pet Resorts Australia, who is another major sponsor of this podcast. Pet Resorts Australia offers all types of boarding for dogs, cats, Sometimes birds in locations all the way up from Townsville, all the way down in New South Wales in the Southern Highlands. You can find them on Pet Resorts with an S, PetResortsAustralia.com. Thanks, Verity. Appreciate you joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We'll look forward to having you back some other time. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Look forward to you joining us on the next podcast. (laughs) 